You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Teen Vogue Editor-in-Chief Lindsay Peoples-Wagner and Pyre Moss designer Kirby jean Ramon join Washington Post fashion critic Robin Gavon to discuss racial inequality and discrimination in the fashion industry and how to make lasting change. Let's listen. Good afternoon. I'm Robin Gavon with the Washington Post. I'm the fashion critic, and thank you for joining me with Washington Post Live. Joining me this afternoon are Lindsay Peoples-Wagner, the editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, and the creator and creative director and founder of Pierre Moss, Kirby Jean Raymond. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you, Robin. Um, I thought I would start out by just uh, talking a little, asking you to talk a little bit about your road to fashion, because um, I think for a lot of people, it can seem like an intimidating place uh, to venture. And I think you both had interesting routes here. Um, Lindsay, you are the youngest, I think, editor-in-chief at uh, the Condé Nast. And you started out there at Team Vogue as an intern uh, mm-hmm. from Wisconsin. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I remember you said that uh, it was, I think, uh, who suggested that you perhaps pursue an internship uh, at Team Vogue. Can you just talk about uh, that uh, suggestion and the hurdles that you sort of uh, soared over on your road there? Yeah, um, I mean, I always really loved fashion. I really felt that it was something that I adored from watching the hills, or I spent a lot of summers with my grandmother um, at a Black Senior Citizen Center where we would make like quilts and rugs and pillows, but it really wasn't until college that I realized that I wanted to give it a real, real effort and a real try. Um, so one of my former professors, um, her name is Jamie Claiborne. Jamie, if you're watching, hello. I miss you. Um, she's always been great um, to me, and she had saw the post on Ed 2010, um, which I don't think they even do job postings anymore. But um, and she said, you know, I think you should go and try it. And so I went um, and just did closet work, which is basically organizing and merchandising of clothes and returning clothes to designers. And I was hooked. So I came back, you know, every summer, every chance I got, I was interning. And yeah, it was my first job out of school as well. Can I ask you how important it was to have that person who sort of understood at least to some degree what it took to enter the industry, to have that person say to you, maybe you should do this? Yeah, I mean, I think that's everything because especially where I'm from, it wasn't necessarily that anyone was telling me that I couldn't do it. I just didn't know it was actually an option, right? And I think that for a lot of Black kids specifically, you don't even know that certain jobs in fashion are a thing. I think you see just designer, but you don't know that you could also be creative director at brands. You don't know that you could also, you know, be consulting for brands. And I think that that exposure, um, especially as a young Black girl, is everything. Um, Kirby, you came to fashion from a completely different route. Uh, You are a child of immigrants. You are from East Flatbush. And you once uh, had said that um, when it comes to design, our our superpower is our story. 
So what what is your story? What what was it about fashion uh, that intrigued you? Because you have tentacles in a lot of creative fields, but fashion is kind of your primary vocabulary. Right. I mean, um, for me, like getting into fashion specifically was kind of like it was it was making a choice between all of those different things that were influencing me and that I was. Um, being surrounded by, whether it be uh, music or, um, you know, sports or entertainment and um, science and politics and all these different things that I could have chose from, I uh, I gravitated towards fashion because it was something that was like naturally um, uh, appealing to me was uh, with sneakers. And I, and I always wanted to be a, a sneaker designer. And I remember going um, into the high school of fashion industry, like directory book, I mean, sorry, the, the New York State, New York City High School Directory book, and you had like a bunch of different schools, and I landed on the, the page for the High School of Fashion Industries and saw that they had a, a shoe design and a jewelry design program. And um, and I, I, you know, always knew how to draw, so I took, I, I did the portfolio and painted the still lifes and, and did everything that was required to get into the school. Um, you know, the technical drawings of shoes and everything. And this is when I was 12 and 13 years old. And when I finally got into the school, um, uh, we had citywide budget cuts for New York City public schools and they took away the jewelry and shoe design program. And they defaulted me into a fashion design program as like a next best option. And it wasn't something I was fond of in the beginning. It wasn't something that I wanted to do, but um, it was something that eventually uh, became part of my life because I, I, I started to experience it in different ways. I was learning to do it in school, which I hated. Um, and one, you know, uh, one thing led to another as far as like um, my homeroom teacher getting me this opportunity uh, to intern at Camden, New York. And um, when I was 14 years old and I started, I started working for Kay at 14 and at 15 years old, um, uh, she gave me my first job uh, my first paying job in, in, in the fashion industry, uh, where, um, I was her apprentice. I began, I began as her apprentice. And then soon after that, she was helping, um, Georgina and Karen start Marquesa and she put me on that project. And I kind of caught the bug from there and developed my own brands. Um, you know, uh, did a lot of costume design really early on, a lot of like streetwear stuff really early on. And, um, you know, supplemented with my high school education, which was a little bit more formal in learning the technical, you know, the technical know-how of how to create clothing and everything like that. Um, then doing the tech prep, pro tech prep program at, um, at the uh, FIT uh, helped a lot too, but ultimately I went to college at um, uh, Hofstra University and, you know, I really got to, um, learn learn my business skills and i always knew that i wanted to have my own brand and um you know as, as a teen i was i was kind of like a, a protege in that way where i was i was young and i was a novelty item and able to um you know be be the kid that that people wanted to work with because it was it was it was cool because i was like a young kid that could draw and and um but when i when i when i graduated from college and i was um 21 22 years old uh, I wasn't that cute kid anymore, and um, and the job opportunities 
were all gone. So I saw the only way to um, to, to start my to to get get a foot back in the fashion was to have my own business. And at 26, um, uh, well, cusp of 26, I started I started Pierre Moss. and um, it's been it's been uh, uh, it's been six and a half years at this point of um, it's been six and a half years at this point of uh, of Pierre Moss and um, been a wild wild adventure. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say it feels like both of you, um, you know, came into this industry and um, never, at least from the outside, it seems, never faltered in terms of uh, how you wanted to define yourselves in the industry, and but also how you wanted to change the industry, and because that leads me to, I think one of the most um, revealing stories that's been written about the industry, particularly um, within um, people of color, was the story that, Lindsay, that you did when you were at New York Magazine at The Cut. And it was essentially your interviewing something like 100 different Black people within the fashion industry. And I think one of the most moving things was your talking about how it almost became a bit of a, a therapy session. Um, I mean, can you talk about that a little bit? Because it, it seemed like in many ways the emotion came out of someone wanting to hear their stories and then wanting to put those stories out there for the world to see in, in a really major way. Yeah, I mean, I believe there's strength in numbers, and I think that a lot of what I've always tried to do my work is, you know, how do we look at all these things through inclusivity and in a way that hasn't been done before and I think that people traditionally have always felt like when specifically black people you know want to talk about their experience in the industry that it's all you know complaining or that it's you know a nuanced specific experience and I really felt like there was something bigger to say of things that people have really gone through that they may not have shared that they may not have talked about um, a lot of people that i that really had a lot to lose even being a part of the interview. And I mean, Kirby was a part of it. I think it was really monumental for me to just be able to talk to everyone, you know, new in the industry and veterans in the industry and hear their perspectives and also get their opinions on a way forward. And um, I mean, as I look back, it's been almost two years, which is crazy. But I think, you know, it's only now kind of become a part two of what it's like to be a black editor-in-chief now in this role and i think that a lot of it for me has been such a learning lesson and also um you know provided a bit more of a community between us of knowing that other people are also struggling with these things because i think too often you know black people are you know told you're going to be blackballed or you're not going to get hired or you're not going to get a job if you speak up on these things and so i felt like it was the best way at that time to definitely talk about all the issues for sure in, in the aftermath of that, did you did you hear from people who felt like they had that they had in fact lost something by participating in those interviews? No, I think well, what people were telling me was that I was not going to get a job. People were telling me <laughs> I lose um, lose any footing in the industry because you know I don't think that people love to be on the side of reporting on 
you know, people's discretions about the industry. So it was, it was more so people were saying like, oh, like after this, like people aren't going to let you report on this kind of thing or people are going to pigeonhole you to only writing about this certain thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, I think that piece came out on a Tuesday or Wednesday and that Friday I had email from Anna. So worked out. Yeah. So, um, since, since you, you bring that up, I'm going to jump right in on that question. Uh, the email from Anna from two years ago. I, I'm, I'm really curious, not necessarily, well, not wanting or you to, you know, reveal like secrets or anything, but if you want to feel free, uh, that the conversation that you had with her then about what she wanted from an editor of Teen Vogue versus what she has been saying now in the midst of so much upheaval in media, uh, whether, I mean, it's happened at the Washington Post, it's happened at the New York Times, and it certainly happened at, at Condé Nast. So can you, can you talk about then versus now? Yeah, I mean, I think the, I remember that weekend very clearly because I thought the email was spam at first, and then I realized it wasn't. And I had talked to a couple of people who I knew interviewed with her before, and a lot of people were giving me all these tips and, you know, learn all these things about tennis in a weekend. And I just very felt strongly by that Monday that I had to be who I really am and that I didn't want to pretend to be somebody that I'm not, but I didn't want to assimilate and I didn't want to make it seem like they were getting something different than really who I am and what I'm passionate about. Um, I'm not concerned with being palatable for white people or any other people. This is what you see is what you get. And so I think that you can see that in all the work that I've done. And I think that you can see that in, in a lot of the changes that have happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, everybody has work to do and I've definitely been an advocate for those changes and, and going to keep pushing for all of them because I, I do think that a lot of things need to change. Do, are you feeling hopeful that, that Condé Nast can change um, with the same system in place? Or do you feel like the system has to be defunded, as one might say? <laughs> I mean, I think the whole system of the industry has to change, right? Like, I think Kirby would say the same thing. I think a lot of things that we traditionally have held up high in the industry need to be moved around. How we talk about what is you know, worthy of being put on the cover, who is chic enough, who we give, you know, platforms and resources to. I think we have to rethink all those things in the industry. Um, Kirby, one of the things that when, when I first met you, you were working on a collection in which you were using a film to introduce that collection that really focused on police violence. And, right. and, and it seemed like at the time that it was incredibly well received and yet there was quite a backlash that occurred um i mean wh what happened at that point and and what did you really learn from it um there's no there's no doubt that it was um well received publicly um i think what happened was you know i think um at the time, this was very new and speaking about black lives um, led people to question my motives and 
led people to um, to uh, label me as a pariah or like you know not of fashion or that I couldn't be viable um, commercially. A lot of stores canceled my orders. Um, people were publicly um, you're praising the work, but privately oppressing the idea. And um, you know, I think what 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 really what really showed there is that um, you know, as I suspected, that you know the the rally cries of Black Lives Matter at the time and and some of them even now uh were were for show and um you know people were too scared to to say that they hated the idea and um you know you've seen a lot of it now where uh people are kind of like showing up as a as their authentic selves and these a lot of corporations um, who are led by these people are showing up in their authentic selves and they can't help it but be insensitive and they can't help it but um be dismissive of of these of these cries from the people so, you know, um, from the fashion industry, like I said, it was pu publicly, it was, it was lauded, but privately I was, I was being um, slowly dismantled um, with, from, a, from a business standpoint. And, you know, it's, it's funny now, it's not, I, I wouldn't say it's funny, but it's, it's ironic now that like, you know, we're getting articles like New York Times published an article last week. Um, you know, a lot of people are kind of going back to that show, like, you know, as if, as if um, you know, they're just finding it out for the first time, and uh, I don't, I don't really know what to make of that yet. But I, 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 I think our relationship, um, Robin, has always been uh, tremendous because you were one of the first to show me respect, and as a black woman, you, you understood the importance of what we were doing then. Um, and you know, I, I thank you before, but thank you again for for being in that video and um, and allowing us to to stage um this act of protest this act of awareness in in such in in such a way that was unsuspecting um to the fashion industry so um thank you for that well you know it's in full disclosure it was it was funny because we hadn't met and a mutual friend uh had connected us and I have to say, I mean, I remember that you, you came all the way down to Washington to do this interview, which completely bowled me over because I was like, really, he's coming all the way to Washington to do this? Okay. Um, and when you say, though, that people were afraid, I mean, what were they afraid of? Do you think acknowledging police violence? Or, I mean, it. It's an interesting conundrum, I think, in the industry because people like to perceive fashion as being incredibly progressive, extremely tolerant, tremendously open-minded. And yet all of those things would lead you to suspect that it would then be the most racially diverse, size diverse, age diverse, the most sort of embracing kind of community. Um, I mean, how do you respond when you see companies now sort of stepping up and saying, rah, rah, you know, we are on the side of racial justice, and yet they don't seem to have, like, looked at their own boardroom? 2015 and Black Lives Matter and, you know, the thoughts, the, the, the thoughts and 
um, you know, the the effects of um, police brutality and things like that were were coming to the public consciousness again. People weren't asked to choose a side um, and boldly take a stance the way that they had to after 2016 when Trump was elected, because now you had somebody who was public and making these statements and being very um, divisive and, you know, literally a country divided. And I think, you know, um, back then with stores and with magazines and with, you know, all of the other establishments within our uh, industry, felt like maybe choosing a side was going to alienate half of their customer because they, because people, you know, it was, it was still a gray area between who was who. And, um, and I think what, what happened is, is like, you know, in, in this Trump era, we've seen a lot of people, um, just become a lot more emboldened, um, outwardly racist versus, um, covertly racist, what we were experiencing before. And, you know, we, we see, we're unearthing things now. We're realizing that we had, you know, outward racist among us in the fashion industry. And you're, you're, you're seeing them, you know, you're seeing images now, you're seeing, you know, black face parties and, and, you know, um, but the, but the type of stuff that we were enduring um, as, as young designers and as creatives and editors and stuff like that, a lot of that stuff was covert and people weren't, people weren't speaking out about it um, in droves. So being the first one or being the one to say like, yo, this is, this is going on. And, and this is, um, this is bothering me. It's easy to look, it's easy to look crazy. And that's what, that's what kind of happened to me. It was like, I look, I look crazy being a whistleblower in these, in these ways. And, you know, like I remember, um, I posted a story on Twitter the other day and, um, how embarrassed, uh, I was by my ambition, um, to, to, to be, to be in Barney's and to be, um, amongst like my, contemporaries of the time, who by air, fear of God, off-white, et cetera, because mm -hmm. of, of, this, of this post that this editor did. And he went to the Barney's um, seventh floor where they grouped up all of those black designers in like four racks. And that's kind of like the best that we got as black designers getting the Barney's. And the, the guy who was a influential editor wrote, um, excuse me, um, please point me to the fuckboy section or something like that. And um, I, 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 I tweeted it uh, about two, three weeks ago, just kind of like illustrate the type of stuff that I was dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis and the type of stuff that I was experiencing and, you know, just even trying to go out to fashion parties and still not being able to get in because I was black or looked a certain way. And like all these things is like bubbling up and they, and they're on top of who I already was. I, you know, I've been protesting since 1999 with Abu Like, I've been, um, you know, I started the NAACP chapter at my college. Like, I've been, I've been this person. So, like, I was always, always looking out for it. But when I, when, when I came into the industry, what I started to realize was a lot of my black counterparts, whether they had been my, my publicist at the time or stylists that I was working with, were just taking it. And I wasn't, I wasn't willing to just take it like that. And um, it took it took my counterparts um, some soul searching and some and some shit to happen. It's for Trump to get elected, for them to even come out and say, "Yo, this, you know what? He's actually not crazy." And and for a while, I just looked like I just looked like I was beating a dead horse and doing this shit for attention because no one else was speaking up for me with me. So, Lindsay, I'm I'm curious if you 
have a, a, a say, the same sense of timeline. I mean, did 2016 feel like that was uh, a turning point in, in your mind in terms of what you were willing to speak up for, what you were willing to sort of put, uh, you know, career on the line for, and whether or not you had other people who were willing to go along with you in making a stand? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Trump definitely played a lot of portions and a lot of things, you know, going badly. But I think that a lot of it for me really started from this place of just humbly coming into the industry and really wanting to learn from the best people and really just being hungry and the first one in and the last one out. And I always had to work multiple jobs because I'm not from a wealthy family, so I couldn't afford to just work my $9 an hour job and go home and wear Chanel all day. So it was a lot for me. I felt very alone and I felt like there weren't a lot of people to really look up to that wanted to give you the blueprint, wanted to help you and wanted to help you figure it out. And so I honestly just got fed up to a point of wanting to do more work of really being vocal about a lot of things because I realized that a lot of the other black girls that also wanted to work in fashion would start, you know, they would get a job and then they would, you know, come to me, you know, a month in and be like, hey, like, I don't think I can do this. It's really a lot. There's a, there's a ton of microaggressions happening. If I, you know, don't wear designer stuff every day, you know, I don't think these people will ever pay attention to me. I'm not going to get promoted. Um, I'm broke. Like, and I just think I realized that there wasn't, there wasn't going to be a legacy after me and I've always really tried to ground myself as being a ladder and helping up those around me and helping another black person get in get their foot in the door and get a job and I realized that you know I definitely had to put my feet to the fire on some more serious issues to get people into the rooms and to be able to get people to have these conversations. When you when you got to Teen Vogue and and you know Teen Vogue had in many ways stood out for its um, it's, it's willingness to talk about uh, politics and, and, uh, and sort of third rail issues. When, when you got there, what were the things that you really wanted to bring to the fore? And I think a lot of people wonder, you know, you've been able to, to bring these things to the table, to put certain people on the cover. So it seems like the lack of that in other parts of that of the, the company is not for uh, an, an unwillingness of the company to let that happen. It's the lack of the will of perhaps other editors to champion it. Yeah, I mean, everybody runs a, a different magazine and I for sure, um, I mean, it's it, everybody has different experience and, and, and life experience on how they choose those different people. I always felt really strongly that especially when I assisted at Teen Vogue, I felt like, you know, our young Hollywood package was like all white straight couples and there were no queer couples. There was nobody, you know, mixed. There was nobody that wasn't a straight white person. And I always felt like, you know what, one day if I come back and I'm able to make changes, like this is something that I'm going to change. Um, I think that a lot of it for me hasn't been it, it's not about like canceling anything for me. It's about like holding people accountable and it's about making changes that are really productive and positive because I love this industry. I love my job. And I think that it is possible for you to build upon, 
you know, some failures of, of other people and make it into a good thing. One of the, the things that you had been quoted as saying in the past is that if you had a daughter, you weren't really sure if you'd want her to work in this industry. Do you still feel that way? Or do you feel like you have cleared a path that would make you more comfortable with having a daughter work in the industry? I still feel that way. I just think that it, it's not for everyone. I think that it's, um, I say this to, to young black girls all the time who email me and are like, I think I want to do this. It's just not for everyone. And I don't mean that in a way of, you know, that you can't do it. I just think that it is such an emotional roller coaster to be one of the only black people doing anything. And specifically in the fashion space, you know, it hasn't fully opened up to us. I think it's opened up to us in certain spaces and certain levels that are on the surface, but I don't think that that door is fully yet open. Yeah. And Kirby, I, I guess I would sort of put the same question to you. If you had uh, a son who was creative, artistic, would you encourage that son to work in fashion or would you say, don't do it? Oh man, um, this, that's, that's loaded. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know that's loaded. Um, I know, I know, I know. My father didn't want me to work in this industry because he thought he, you know, he was just like, just stay out, of, just stay out of trouble. And you know, that's his best way of saying like, stay where people love you, and um, you know, and where where people will appreciate you. And I think um, the work that we're doing, and I think um, the work that Lindsay's doing, the work that you're doing, the work that um, all of us, you know, all of the designers, whether they're legacy or, or brand new, and um, you know, people who are working behind the scenes, people who are doing their PR, we're all um, making it so that this space loves us back. And it might not love us in our lifetime, but we're going to leave the door open and make it um, a better place. So I, I, I'm, I'm confident in the work that we're doing, um, knowing that it's going to be a better place for my son or my daughter. Well, I want to um, just get to a, a couple questions that uh, some people have submitted. And the first one is from... Mila Lawson, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Mila Lawson from Illinois. And her question is, have you always felt safe bucking the status quo in fashion and challenging racism at work? And I, I think either of you could take on that question. Uh, I can start with that. I mean, the, 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 the answer is absolutely not. Um, in the beginning, uh, I've, I like, with a passion, I want to say ferociously hid the fact that I was black um, from the public view um, until I couldn't anymore, which wasn't much long, but you know, the minute uh, people, uh, people realized they liked my work and they saw me, then the two things couldn't coexist. And, um, and my work couldn't just be what it was. It had to become something else. You know, if I was making, if I would, if I was making fifty thousand dollar evening gowns, they would have still called me a streetwear designer. And you know, I, I, I had the foresight to know that that was coming. And, um, you know, 
and and I knew there were going to be labels that I wasn't going to escape, and I knew there was going to be comparisons that I couldn't escape, and I knew that I was going to be given a shelf life. Um, you know, one of the, like I remember one of the first death sides I ever did, and if you guys don't know what death sides are, it's when you take when your publicist takes the designer to meet the editor, you sit at their desk. Um, that's why they call it a death side, <laughs> and you you present them you present them your collection. So you bring like a selected. You know, if you have a 40-piece collection, you bring them, like, 10 pieces or five pieces, whatever the case is. And this was my first ever desktop. And I remember rolling these racks um, down Fifth Avenue uh, to, 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 go, to go, you know, I was super excited and ner- nervous. I didn't know. This was 2014 or 2013. And um, the... Uh, the guy was like, listen, I'm not even going to bother to look at the clothes. He was like, I'm just going to tell you right now, uh, there's a wave happening with you, with Ben Trill, with, with Enwar, with um, public school. And you got you to gotta ride that wave like the Latin explosion, like, like Mark Anthony and Ricky Martin. You guys have to make that Macarena money. And, and um you know, all of those things, all of those microaggressions and macroaggressions um, made it very unsafe for me to be myself. And for, yeah, so um, at first it wasn't easy, but at some point, you know, you start realizing that playing that game is never going to work. You know, you're going you, you're gonna to be forced to speak a way you're not, it's not natural for you. You're going to be forced to like be a certain way that's not natural for you. And um, at some point, you got to give up their game and, and play what's authentically yours. And, 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 um, and it might take longer, but it's worth it in the end. Um, and the last question is from Danielle Quateng from New York. And Danielle, I apologize if I mispronounced your name. What can brands, especially Quateng, what can brands, especially ones who've uh, profited from black culture, do to intentionally support the communities of color that they've taken from. Um, I will toss that one to um, to you, Lindsay. Yeah, I mean, I think right now there's a lot that brands can do. I think, you know, the, one of the biggest annoyances that I have right now is seeing all the brands post, um, you know, an MLK quote, a Mandela quote, or some stock imagery that they found from God knows where. Um, and a black square and then you know kind of say that they've made a donation not really say how much or where they've made a donation and then they're back to posting their usual influencers that are still not really you know anything different um and i think what a lot of us are really feeling right now in industries that there needs to be a really a really um eager commitment to you know making a long system change that it can't just be popping in and out of this moment because if not, you know, we're gonna have to we're gonna have this problem again in six months. And I think that a lot of the brands have to really be invested in making serious changes from you know their boardrooms, but also you know making sure there's a pipeline for younger talent to be promoted. Um, I think that it's you know a serious effort in you know changing influencer networks. And I saw some brands still the other day posting you know campaigns that had zero diversity. It's just unacceptable. And I think that it's a holistic point of view that really has to shift for all these brands and making sure that they're thinking about inclusivity at every turn. 
Well, I wish I could talk to you for two hours more, but um, I'm going to have to end it at that. Thank you both so, so much. And thank you to the audience for tuning in. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.